0: I'm going to try and figure out with a fellow journalist what to think about China I know on the dish we had a really interesting dissent section on my my piece about giving up essentially and accepting China as a world power and giving up Taiwan and all the rest of it and I was thinking who can I who, who can I talk to you about this who can really flesh this out anyway Michael Schumann is a a freelance journalist and writer and China expert. And he writes for Bloomberg and the Atlantic. He's out in Hong Kong. And he's been writing about this subject for a very long time. He's also an expert on Confucius. And I want to get into, he wrote a really apparently wonderful book about Confucius. And I want to understand Confucius more too. Michael, thank you so much for doing this. And you're doing this kind of late at night because it's early in the morning here.
1: Well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. It's It's an important subject.
0: It is. And we're incredibly, sort of, we haven't really fleshed this out. We're so busy talking about critical race theory. We haven't any idea of how to deal with our major global competitor and rising world power. Michael, tell me a little bit how, where you grew up and how this became an issue and how you became interested in in this subject.
1: Uh, Well, I'm actually just a guy from New Jersey. I grew up in the suburbs of new york and i got interested in asia in college where i studied a lot of asian history and and also some economics especially in grad school and with the amazing kind of economic growth and development not just in china but throughout the whole region i decided this is what i really wanted to spend my life writing about i when i was a grad student i spent the summer actually in new delhi writing and i got hooked and then I've been in Asia full-time since 1996. That was my first post was in Seoul, South Korea for the Wall Street Journal. And I've been out here since. I came kind of actually a little late to China. You know, the more important China became to the world and to the United States, the more and more it became a focus of my writing over the years to the point where now China and its role in the world has become kind of the the primary thing that I've been focusing on.
0: And um, it's a thing that many of us are Now trying to focus on and understand, because it's also a fluid situation and things we believed in or thought five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, are now subject to constant revision, given the changes within China itself. And you married a Korean uh, American, right? You're married.
1: Yes, I am. Yes.
0: And, And as the British used to say, you obviously love it over there. Is this what is it about Asia that keeps you fascinated with the place?
1: Uh, the, the pace of change out here in the last, you know, 40 to 50 years is is just absolutely mind boggling. I mean, when you think about not just China, but Korea, Southeast Asia, all, all the, most of the region, what these nations were like then and what they are now in terms of their wealth, in terms of their technology, in terms of their role in the world and how the, the way that role has changed. I mean, it's a remarkable story and and it as you said it's ever-changing and china most of all right now so it's just basically it seems internally fascinating uh, <laughs> to to me and I, I think is as an american you know asia and china to the great degree are the future when we look around the world as an american what's going to become more and more important to all, to our lives as americans and that's that's china but not just china the, the whole region actually
0: is there any other comparison? I'm thinking maybe Europe in the Industrial Revolution, maybe, in which a region of the world just went up a logarithm in two generations, essentially. I mean that that creates an incredibly fluid culture and society, presumably, and lots of stresses and lots of strains.
1: The, the Industrial Revolution is one, but you know, way of looking at it. But you could also argue that. Perhaps nothing like this has actually happened in, in human history where you have had such a phenomenal increase in wealth over such a tremendous number of people. You know we're talking about hundreds of millions of people out of poverty in basically you know a generation. And you know going back to the 1950s, 1960s, some of these countries when I talk about like South Korea, were among the poorest places in the world, and economists really didn't give them a whole lot of hope. And look at where they are now with, you know, companies like Samsung and of course China as well. You know, when Deng Xiaoping started the economic reform effort in in the 1980s, I mean, China was one of the poorest places in the world where the vast majority of its people were below the international poverty line. And now they're competing with the United States in in high tech, the second largest economy in the world. And uh, you know, that was only, that's only over 40 years. There's a chance that it's totally unprecedented.
0: Is there something? I mean, obviously, then the question becomes what was Asia before that? What was holding them back? Obviously, they're incredibly rich and diverse and intelligent peoples across, across East Asia, and, and, but only now. So, what, is, it, is it the miracle of global capitalism? Is that what happened? They got plugged into this broader network and took off. Is that the best explanation? Are there cultural explanations behind this? For example, if you look at the Middle East or you look at Africa, you look at south america that this isn't happening there anything like the speed and success of it is what is the secret there
1: well to a certain extent what's happening out here is kind of a return to the norm i mean when you look back over 2000 years of history you could find you know economic estimates of this type of thing you know china and india were routinely you know among the largest economies in the world so what you saw with the rise of the west and actually, to a, to a great extent, really just since the 19th century, China was still one of the largest economies in the world well into the 19th century. So what you've really seen in modern times is something of an aberration when these countries kind of missed out on the industrial revolution and changing technology and the sh- the economic center of the world shifted. So in some ways, what you're looking at is really just a, resta- a restoration of the way what had been Sort of sort of normal for most of history. But in terms of how it happened so quickly, I mean I, there's lots of opinions of, about this about you know the role of the states and state capitalism and all the industrial policies and all this stuff. But what it really is, in my opinion, it's just, its basically proof of classical economics. What these countries did is that they tapped into global trade and the, change, the changing opportunities that free trade presented and changing technology presented. And they, they took their populations and they basically threw them into the global economy. And, it's, and also encouraged private enterprise and private investments. That's where the jobs and the growth really came from.
0: And so, when we were, I remember when we were talking about this in the 90s, and this was the strategy. Right. And and people thought if we can get them in the WTO, if we can connect them to global trade, they want this and it will be good for everyone. And so they didn't just throw their own people in it. We helped them. And without us, it almost certainly couldn't happened. None of this would have
1: happened without the active participation of the United States. China would not be China today if, if the American government did not decide to cooperate with the Chinese reform effort. And when you think about it, there's a lot, of course, now. Retroactive criticism of the decisions that were made with China—the decision to engage China—but actually, a lot of what was predicted became true. You know, you had tremendous economic development in this region, which has been tremendously beneficial to American companies and the global economy overall. And you know, many of those countries that participated in this process became de- democratic societies and, and allies of the United States. So in many respects, the whole thing actually kind of worked. We look at China and what's happening with China now, and we're, well, you know, maybe it didn't. And with China, it's taken a different turn. But when you look at the decisions that were made 40 years ago and the way the world looked and how it actually played out, uh, a lot of what was anticipated actually played out as it was anticipated.
0: Exactly. and, and, and But that makes the failure, because the argument was, The big argument in the 90s was, does democracy inevitably come from this kind of economic growth, the empowerment, enlargement of the middle classes? Will that eventually require the the Communist Party in China to understand that it has to adapt and change? And there were many people, and I remember having this argument at the time, I was with those, the optimists, although I had a certain amount of skepticism, but there was other people I talked to who were like, absolutely not. The nature of this regime is such that it will never alter voluntarily and that it's going to use this wealth to concentrate its own power to dominate its own people and then to project its own power across the world in a rather crude nationalistic way and when i might have like 10 years ago i might have said I, that's problematic but these days especially since the rise of xi president xi they seem to be they seem to be right
1: well this is I think one thing people have to understand about China is how dramatically China has changed under Xi Jinping. And, you know, that that narrative about how rising wealth and greater greater integration with the world was going to make China kind of a more, more open place, to a great degree that was actually becoming true. I mean, Chinese had a lot more, uh, you know, China never became a, a democracy and probably wasn't going to, at least under the current regime, but it did become a more open place where people had more information. They were able to travel. They had more education opportunities, more economic opportunities. So in in some ways, China was changing in all those positive positive ways. I, I for one, never really bought into the China was going to become a democratic society. But what I did think was that China was going to realize it benefits so much from the current kind of world system that it would basically buy into that system and then be a be somewhat of a partner in that system. Uh, but this has very much changed under Xi Jinping. And my attitude towards China has changed mainly because of Xi Jinping. Tell
0: us exactly what Xi Jinping has, what were the moments when you kind of realized this is, this is changing?
1: It's happened actually quite slowly and a little bit mm-hmm. over time. I think it's When did become, you first
0: sort of get that sense? When did you first see a warning sign?
1: I'd say roughly about five to six years ago. Hmm. Where it became increasingly clear that the government, the Chinese government under Xi Jinping, had kind of lost interest in liberal economic reform, and as well as having uh, a constructive relationship with 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 you. The and then it became also clear that this was a, a government that was becoming more repressive domestically. When you look at what happened with the Uyghurs and the way that the Chinese state has used technology to to monitor and and control the population. And I'd say in the last, you know, maybe 18 months, especially two years, you're looking at an increasingly aggressive foreign policy where it's become very obvious where the Chinese actually want to uh, overturn the current order and they're attacking democratic values and democracy. So this is a, this is the government that has very much shifted the direction of where China was going why I think there's a, was it part
0: of a power struggle within the elite Was it I, ideological Was it just retaining power What was it
1: I think part of it has to do with Xi Jinping himself and the way that he's changed the nature of government in China You know since the Deng years tell tell us how that yeah since since the since the Deng Xiaoping years the China was kind of run almost by committee. This is a reaction to the disasters of the Mao years, when the leadership realized, you know, we can't have one guy kind of running amok. We need to find some other way. So they found a way of kind of of creating almost a government by group, where you had different factions in the party, different interests that that all kind of had a role to play. And they found a way of transitioning from one leader to the next in in kind of a peaceful, organized manner. she has changed that. She has gone back to basically a one a one man, one man rule. And everything now kind of begins and you know, begins and ends with him. And that's that has been a dramatic change in Chinese governance. And tell,
0: tell us about him himself. Where does he come from? How do we understand him? Is he a Stalin? Is he a, a, a sort of a, a Ceausescu? Is he a Putin? What tell me? What is? Well, where did this man come he, from?
1: He took when when he gained power in in twenty twelve. The general thinking on him was that he was going to be like a Deng Xiaoping. That he was basically a reformer. He's the the son of another communist. Luminary, and his experience in government was in some of the more progressive states in in China. There was, and the opinion of him was that he was going to be a, a reformer and a liberal reformer. Now that turned out not to be the case. It turned out that he's uh, he's much more autocratic. That he's that he actually looks back to Mao, not to Deng, in in the way that he wants to run the country. Um, and. This has precipitated a whole bunch of changes in economic policy, social policy, foreign policy. In economic policy, you know, you're seeing this right now with what's happening on Wall Street with the way Chinese stocks have been tanking recently. You know, he's, reord- he's reoriented the relationship between the state and the private sector. It's open Communist Party policy that they want to get more control over private companies. He has, on in, in foreign policy, he's become much more aggressive and nationalistic. And the idea that he increasingly wants to assert Chinese influence, but in ways that are, I think, at our expense of the U.S. and the U.S.-led order. He wants to change the way the world thinks about government and good government. He wants to make autocracies as legitimate as democracies in the eyes of the world. And that's become very open in, in, in his speeches. He wants to change the way international relations work, to strip them of their... Uh, basically of their values. China under, you know, you can say, oh, well, you know, we should have known this. Look at the communist regime. And 40 years ago, we could have predicted that. Maybe that's true on a certain level. But at, at the same time, you know, even eight, 10 years ago, we couldn't necessarily have predicted how Xi was going to change China and change China's role in the world as quickly as it's happened.
0: Is there a risk for him that of killing Economic growth with this attempt to control the private sector and the economy more generally, which could actually create real problems for him?
1: Well, I think he doesn't necessarily see it that way. Uh, He's more of a statist, right? So he thinks that he's actually promoting Chinese development by having the state gain more control. He doesn't see it in the way that you and I would see it. I mean, the average economist, right, would sit down and write up a list of, of everything China should not be doing at this stage to continue its economic progress. And she has basically ticked off more or less every box. But that's not how the Chinese leadership sees it. The Chinese leadership sees that their programs right now, their state industrial programs, the way they want to gain more control over, over technology, their way they're reorienting China's international economic relations, that this is all basically the way to make to get China to that next step. You know, your average classically trained economist would not agree with that. So what you see going on in China is a bit of a great economic experiment to see whether a classical economics holds up against what's this kind of uh, emergingly aggressive state capitalism in China.
0: Is there some, I mean, you, you, you're a scholar of Confucius and Confucius is now mentioned quite a lot, as I understand it, in some of the rhetoric coming from Xi and people around him. And we are, you know, we have sort of fortune cookie understanding of Confucius at this point (laughs) in the West. And I never studied him. And, you know, I studied political theory at Harvard, and I, uh, but he was not on the syllabus, and maybe he should be. Is tell us about his writing and his work. When was he? by let's assume people know nothing. Let's go. Okay. When well, when did he live?
1: He he lived in Eastern China in what is now Shandong Province, and he was he lived around 500 BC. So he BC. lived around the, BC. He lived around the same time as uh, Socrates and Buddha, actually all roughly lived around the same time which is pretty interesting. And he his actual doctrine if you go back to kind of classical pure confucianism was very much about restoring order to a broken society. At the time China was not unified and you had a lot of in, a lot of small independent states all fighting with each other and Confucius and other philosophers at the time we're very focused on well how do you basically build a better society and the basis of confucianism is a very simple way of describing it is that it's based on the idea of virtue and the the infectious quality of virtue that if you're if you're a, a good ruler a good king and you're a virtuous king that will have a, a almost a magical effect and will make society virtuous as well he was also very much Focused on the family, the family was actually the core of society, and the way the family was regulated and run was the basis for for a peaceful, prosperous society. And a lot of modern people see Confucius as being pro-authoritarian. You know, he wasn't. Uh, he didn't believe in in democracy as we understand it in the West, Plato or Aristotle, for that matter. <laughs> yeah, but but he did not believe in coercive states, and this is where I think things really. I think people really get Confucius wrong. Because if you're a good ruler, you shouldn't need to be coercive because people would follow you willingly because you're doing the right thing. So he was actually, in that sense, anti-authoritarian in the idea that authoritarian states are inherently coercive. Well, it's Um,
0: the distinction between a king and a tyrant in as much as one man rule can be virtuous and create a virtuous citizenry if the the king is virtuous. If he's not, yes, the alternative. And, And yeah, yeah go well, on.
1: there's a catch that you caught on. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing about the Confucians is that they've been writing political philosophy for a couple thousand years, and they never really figured out what to do with a bad emperor. You know, well, this and, is something. And, you
0: know, this is something that Aristotle and Plato did deal with they grapple <laughs> with it, and so they would say, and what they did say was that in the best of all possible worlds, yes, we'd have an enlightened despot. We'd have someone yes. who was so good that the. But they also qualified that by saying but that never happens. So where do we go from there? I mean, that's definitely in Aristotle and Plato, the, the, pr- the provisionality of that and the randomness of it and how do you overcome that? But they all believed that, that one man rule, if that one man was really cool and, and benevolent and virtuous, was obviously the ideal way of life. And that's not a defense of democracy. It never has been. Plato didn't believe in it. Aristotle didn't believe in it. And Confucius didn't believe in it. Because it means cacophony and chaos and rampant egalitarianism and the society eventually breaks down and needs a... Re- that's, the, that's the that's the classical view. Did Confucius grapple with that?
1: Well, the, Did you the, say early, he the early Confucians believed that they had a certain concept in, embedded in the writings that, in my opinion, wasn't really fleshed out in the way that it needed to be. But, you know, they had the idea of the will of the people, that, you know, the way that that you became uh, a ruler was that you basically were you had the sanction of heaven. In other words, you had the sanction of the divine, right? But you got that basically by being by based on the will of the people. So there was this early vague concept that that a ruler had to have the support of the, of, of the public, and they explained why dynasties fell and, and kings fell because, oh, they were cruel and therefore, you know, they didn't have the support of heaven. They didn't have the support of the people. So there, there is something of a concept that a, a ruler had to have kind of public, had, had to have a foundation of public support. That's why Confu- traditional Confucian government, in my opinion, I didn't believe in, in coercion because you, if you had to coerce the people, you couldn't possibly have the support of the people and therefore you wouldn't have the support of heaven. By the way, this is kind of my interpretation. You're gonna get all kinds of people arguing with me that this kind of isn't the case. But I mean what, what happened with Confucianism is what happens with a lot of doctrines is that as it became a more of an imperial ideology, you know, that the state teased out the elements that suited it the best. And it basically became the basis of imperial rule. And those access in in, in that way became quote-unquote more authoritarian as it developed over time because as you pointed out it does have these elements of oh well one man rule is really the best you know the best way and you know you have top-down hierarchies things like that were very appealing to you know emperors who were looking for ideological justification for their government so
0: very concerned with social order Right and hierarchy yes. and the family teaching really of Confucius is uh, it comes it comes out a bit like traditional Christianity's view of the family. Right, it's there is a leader of the family and the the wife is to be to obey, but there is also clear obligations from the leader of the family to treat his wife and children well. Is there? Any, what am I? Tell me yes. more about
1: that. The most about that. The, the the family relations were. Yes, they were hierarchical, but they are also reciprocal, right? So right. if you're a son, you're supposed to be loyal to your father, but your father is also supposed to be caring and responsible. And you're right, how much different is this in any traditional society? I think it's different in the way the lengths that the Confucians basically took this to. Basically, you were supposed to stay loyal to your father whenever he did. That was your first loyalty. So in theory, you were supposed to have reciprocal relations. But again, just like I said, they never figured out what to do with a bad emperor. and never quite figured out what to do with a bad father, actually, either. So you were supposed to, you know, protest when your father did something that you thought was wrong. But ultimately, you were supposed to stand by, stand by your father. And this was taken to great lengths. I mean, there's a passage in the Analects about this, where Confucius is talking to some some political figure, and he was talking about how they had a, a man they considered very upright, because he, he turned his father in when his father had committed a crime, and he supported the law. And Confucius thought that actually wasn't upright. In other words, he should have stood by his father, even if his father had committed a crime. That's why there's some Chinese philosophers who understood Confucianism as basically, as you described democratic systems, as a form of kind of social chaos, because your first loyalty was supposed to be to the family, not to anything else, not to the state, not to your greater community. So I think that's where the Confucians differ. And then this idea of loyalty to authority then got extrapolated out in Confucianism where, oh, that, same, that loyalty you have to your father, well, that's the kind of loyalty you should have to the emperor, right? right. That, that, that the, you have these similar hierarchical r- relationships that form themselves throughout society.
0: How are women treated? And what fascinates me is, of course, there is a, a big tension between a, a thriving Western style, well, it's not Western style, but a thriving economy, which employs all of its workforce and a traditional family. Now, presumably the communists were the ones that really broke that and brought women into the workplace. But how is how do women live in China? I mean, is it recognizable to us? Do they have real independence? Are they earning as much money as their male peers? Is there such a thing as feminism in China? Are we? Is this just a completely different world?
1: Uh, it's actually a very confusing picture because, in in some sense, I think you could say, because of the. The communist influence and the way that they the way that they change traditional society you could say that women actually have a lot more independence and equality in china than they would let's say in a society like japan but at the same time there is tremendous sexual abuse and discrimination in chinese society and sexual harassment and it's and it's an issue the government has had trouble dealing with because they're so resistant to any kind of social and civic action that even in, an, in, a, in a completely, in this case, non-political sense, they've had trouble with women, you know, organizing and trying to kind of uh, rectify some of these problems. So. I, the picture on women is actually quite confusing. And in some ways, I think it's actually moving. I actually think it's moving negatively, where it, it feels like there's there's a, a lot more negative discourse about women and the role of women on online, for instance, and that it, it seems to me a little bit that the role of women is somewhat moving backwards.
0: Hmm. The other thing that struck strikes me about China that we don't really talk about very much is the is Han supremacy, essentially that there is an ethnicity, a genetic <laughs> ethnicity right. that has basically complete and exclusive control of public life, including, I mean, so the Chinese citizens who are not Han really have no chance to make it in the government or even perhaps in industry. Tell me how that is. I only have the vaguest understanding of it, but it, it strikes me as an important element. Obviously, we don't have a... We don't have this crazy Nazi-style racial purity. On the other hand, their racial categories are incredibly strict, and the racism that the Africans are experiencing at the hands of the Chinese is would make most Americans, you know, blush, right? It is the crudest form of sense of racial superiority
1: in China. Is that am I caricaturing that? Well, you know, it's see a lot of there's a lot written in Chinese media today about the racial divisions and tensions in the US and and they're using it to kind of attempt to undermine a democratic society. But as you said, I mean, the attitude towards race in China are, are much more extreme. When you look at the way minorities are treated, well, you know, the Uyghurs, of course, being the most obvious example in the way that they're the physical treatment of them in terms of hundreds of thousands or more facing outright detention but also the way that they've been deprived of their religious rights but you know this is basically true with minorities generally recently there were some protests in in the inner mongolian region because the government took away their their ability to study in their own language and of course the challenges that the tibetans have faced in practicing their religion and maintaining aspects of their society under communism are very well known you know they're you could almost look at it that that the Chinese are actually trying to undermine the idea of an, of basically an, in these independent ethnic cultural groups that they're simply as a nation not able to tolerate this this kind of independent social entity and you know, at, at that that these communities are. And you know, this is again part of a bigger picture of the Communist Party where it, it basically can't tolerate anything that's not itself. you know, in any independent civic group or movement or anything that 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 is not. In, under the control of the communist party it sees as a threat and that includes independent minority cultural groups so yes the so the this is a major so, theme so, in china yeah. especially right especially right now with because it's the poor treatment of minorities especially with what's going on in xinjiang with the uyghurs has has intensified in recent years it, it's, it's going it's actually getting worse
0: yeah i've been struck by this Obviously, everyone has yeah. to see these the 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 speed with which they're building vast detention centers, the opacity about what's really going on in there, the attempt to I think sterilize lots of Uyghur women and to break up weaker families, to demolish their mosques and their right. buildings and their history. Now, in Europe, we know what this is. It's and we also know from American history what it is to have a white supremacist ideology. Right. Uh, and you might call this Han supremacy, right? That it, It's really no other group has a right to rule alongside the Han in, in China. So in other words, it's rather a crude racial thing, overlaid or underlaying the, the communist argument. It's as if the two things are fused in a nationalistic way. And when I see a country that has a kind of racial supremacist system that is putting its own citizens of different minorities in detention camps, that is building a very large army and military that is threatening its neighbors, I, there are lots of parallels I can remember in world history in which that was the case. And so we were presented with this dilemma, and I, I sort of want to get to how do we grapple with this? We're obviously a little in too deep. We can't totally decouple from China because of its size and its wealth and its power, but are we appeasing it? Is appeasement a question that we should even talk about? or Are we getting ahead of ourselves?
1: Well, you're getting at the great foreign policy question of the age, basically, right? Because on the one hand, I mean, this is what makes Cold War comparisons not quite right, right? Because the Soviet Union and the U.S. were almost in kind of two separate spheres, right? They didn't have this kind of economic integration in in the way that China and the U.S. do, and the Soviet Union was never integrated with the whole global economy in the way that China is. It's not just a US China issue, it's a global issue that everybody is struggling with the Europeans, the Australians, the Japanese, everyone is struggling with the same question. So suddenly, you know, we have tremendous economic interests in a country that is becoming a, a larger threat to our national interests. And also, I would say, a democracy overall but is also just doing a, a lot of distasteful things that we really don't want to be in a position of condoning or supporting in any way so what do you do I, this is what everyone's trying to figure out i mean the middle we're world... asking you
0: to figure it out now michael i want to know <laughs> the answer what's your take I, if you were put up against a wall and had a gun but you had like how? and i were the president said what ahead. what's my basic approach to china i,
1: I i'm I'm a bit of a realist. You know, you have the whole decoupling, hard decoupling crowd, just like, oh, we'll just pull out all your business tomorrow. Well, that's not going to happen. Uh, and, you know, in some cases, it, it's not, right? I mean, no no U.S. government at this stage. I know if China continues to become a larger and larger threat, maybe it actually comes to that. Maybe business gets kicked out on its own or decided, I mean, but at, at the moment right here in, you know, August 2021, you know, no, no U.S. government is going to order Starbucks to close all of its coffee shops in China, and the Chinese are not going to order Starbucks to close their their coffee shop in China, right? So, to on a certain level, we're kind of stuck doing a certain level of business with them, and that's just the reality. So, what do you do about all of this? Well, I think what you do is you have to increase the costs of to the you have to increase the cost for China to doing the kind of actions that they're doing. And this is the, I think, the approach that the U.S. government has decided to take in terms of imposing, you know, sanctions on companies that are involved in the Xinjiang abuses, for instance, you know, sanctions on officials and things and, you know, who are involved in the Hong Kong crackdowns. I think there's room to do possibly a lot more of this. And I think it also has to be a global effort. It just can't be the United States. If you really want to increase the cost to what the Chinese are doing in Xinjiang, well, this has to be, a, you know, a larger international effort, and then that's a way, you know, the, the U S on its own, cannot exert enough pressure to change Chinese behavior. We may not be able to do it even as basically a collective international community, but at least your chances in, of an increase, and at least you're they, you're greatly increasing the pain and costs of, on the Chinese and their progress, if they're going to continue doing in Xinjiang, for example, what they're doing. I think, that's, I think that that's a starting point. And I think also we have to continue to support what America believes in, both in terms of American values and democracy around the world. I think we have to support the institutions behind that, both at home and abroad. And I think we have to continue to support allies around the world who are in this fight with us and there's, and there's a lot of them already. And they're, I think as China becomes uglier, there there will be more of them. And, and if we can't change China, which we're probably not going to be able to do, we can at least try to kind of contain the influence that the Chinese have in corrupting these values and the way that they can... They, they can we, we don't want the world to change more into what China is, right? So we should be able to at least kind of contain that as much as we can.
0: Yeah, but Michael, <laughs> the, I, the analogy that comes to my mind is how did Britain, for example, and France grapple with the rise of Prussia and Germany in the late 19th century? Obviously, a clearly great power, a great civilization, you can't deny the credible energy and strength of the German state as it quite newly had been put together. and. They thought they had a Deng Xiaoping. They thought they had Bismarck who could keep things on the steady. But when you feed the public a diet of really rather extreme nationalism, and that, you know, this is these, it strikes me that right. China's kind of crude, incredibly crude, incredibly prickly, incapable of really trade offs. Its pride and its arrogance in many ways make it a very prickly and difficult partner. So, and they are. And we do have a proximate problem. They are threatening Taiwan and the South China Sea. And I want to get to this question. They, they People are thinking that they're planning an invasion. It would be an incredibly difficult military mission, but they certainly have a big enough, a big increasingly big military apparatus to do it. Right. Is the world prepared to go to war with a nuclear superpower over this island? Is Europe and the United States, and mainly militarily, the United States really going to put itself on the line for an island that most Americans and most Britons and uh, Europeans are really not that familiar with?
1: I don't think we know the answer to those questions. And that's what every, I, I think that's why the world is in such an uncertain place right now. And because I think Isn't there
0: that... a case that we should be much tougher? That we should, since they are fanatically nationalistic, we need to be very clear that we will be fanatically nationalistic in response if that's the the path they want to take
1: uh no but i look i i think what we have to what we have to under, uh, understand about china is that china is a china is a rising power and it's going to be a rising we can't stop that we're not going to stop that the chinese may stop that themselves with some of the misguided policies that they're Putting in, place in terms of their economy and their foreign policy and, and other elements, there is nothing inevitable about economics and there's nothing inevitable about the continued rise of China, despite what many people think. The U.S. still has a tremendous economic advantage over China, more or less across the board. But, but militarily,
0: uh, how would you put it militarily? How would you rate the Chinese military?
1: I'm not an expert on the Chinese military. I, they are expanding their capabilities tremendously. But they're still not where the U.S. is in in, in any way. But I don't even want to. I, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff that can happen and should happen before we start talking about war and and military. I mean, no one wants a military conflict with with China, and hopefully it will never get there. Uh, but
0: well, of course we don't. But, but right. the trouble with these rising powers that are drink a, a sort of high on their own fumes in a way, and have one leader and fanatical nationalism and a long history of this issue with Taiwan, the, 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 it, we shouldn't be surprised if something happens, if something major happens.
1: We shouldn't be surprised if, if something happened. And I don't think the US totally may, has totally decided what, what it would do in that case. I mean, if you, I, it depends on how you want to think about Taiwan and the US role in the world. Because if you want to make the decision, the U.S. wants to remain a major power in the Pacific, the U.S. is almost forced to back up Taiwan. Because if you don't, all your other allies in Asia are going to be like, okay, well, we really can't trust the Americans to back us up with the Chinese. So we have to make our own accommodation with the Chinese. right? And I guess you could argue, you know, the U.S. doesn't have firm defense commitments with Taiwan in the way that does, for example, with Japan. So I guess you could give up Taiwan and call up the Japanese and say, oh, no, we're really going to be in your foxhole if it ever comes to you. Maybe you could pull that off. But, you know, you start talking about the unraveling of the U.S. alliance system. And that has wide ranging implications because you're basically talking about possibly ceding influence over asia to to china and you're talking about the most economically important and vibrant part of the world right now and you know when you look at what's happening with our european allies who are not entirely on board the us china strategy right now if you're going to if the us is going to stand back from these types of things the europeans aren't going to back us up either so you start talking about the unraveling of the entire us global security order so I mean, maybe I'm being a little melodramatic over one island, but...
0: Well, we've been talking about for quite a while, and Trump, of course, put it on the table, as it were, in a way that was kind of refreshing in as much as it made us have to think, well, what are we doing? Why are we there? And uh, obviously, we have huge interest in trade routes. We have an interest in retaining the alliances with Japan and South Korea. In particular, South Korea is also obviously nerve-wracking to, to be there right next to this beer moss. Right? Do you, I sort of assume that we're going to have to cede some power. Not ceding any power and influence to China is really, to really resist an inevitable shift. I mean, it just in the way that the United States emerged as a rising power and then immediately wanted to extend its influence to the Caribbean and to to South America and Latin America, its own fear of influence. It's very hard to see completely the opposite with a major rifle, which is like, we did it, but you sure can't. And, and, and we have this entire hemisphere to ourselves along with most of the Atlantic, but we want the Pacific all the way up to your border. And I feel the same way we we did with Russia. There's a, there's, an, uh, there's a lack of realism about the need to accommodate in some way Russian pride, Russian nationalism in a way that can be realistically engaged. Right. And I'm concerned that we're still talking to the Chinese as if they're some sort of like non-zero-sum Western actor, where in fact they are a very zero-sum nationalistic tyranny.
1: Uh, you know, w- when you look at really how is changing, though, you could make an argument that that, uh, the US actually has ceded quite a bit of influence to China in the region you know 20 you know 20 years ago every, uh, roughly you know every country in asia had the US as its major trading partner now china is the US, china is the major trading partner for generally every asian country including our allies like like japan south korea so there's the, the, right? the US actually has ceded a lot of influence to china China is a major power in the region, and it is within the region, it is treated as such. I think the problem here is the direction that the Chinese have taken. If, the, if China had stayed on the course that it was on, and if China had stayed on the course with the US expected it to be on, which is that they were going to be basically a partner in the order rather than a threat to the order then it, was, it would have been much easier to accommodating them as a great power in the same way the Chinese had and the U.S. has with Japan, with a rebuilt Europe and, and so on, right? So there, it didn't have to happen this way. You know, the Chinese are choosing to take this course. And so the
0: question is, why did they choose it? if it's against some of their interests. And, 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 they and don't if it's see going... it is
1: against their interests. It is against their interests, but they don't necessarily see it that way. I think there's two factors. Well, that's I, the key I think to un- understanding I...
0: where they're coming from, right? Yeah. I mean, where are they yeah. coming from?
1: I think, there's, I think that there's a long-term historical reason and there's a short-term political reason. The long-term historical reason is the Chinese consider themselves to be a great civilization. They have been a great power in Asia for very long stretches of time. They were the dominant power in Asia for centuries, not always, but for centuries at a time, over the last 2,000 years. And they want to be a great power again. And so that's really the simple historical narrative of it. The current political narrative of it is that you have a, a government that is at home that is increasingly repressive, that is as veered into this one man rule again. And Xi Jinping has to somehow justify this to the country, because his move towards one man rule is not necessarily popular in all circles, right? So he has to justify this to everybody that this is a good idea for China. So what does he do? Well, he paints himself as basically the champion of the Chinese nation. This is the Chinese dream that he talks about, right? The Chinese dream of of a prosperous, powerful society, a restoration of Chinese greatness. Oh, and by the way, he's the guy who's going to give it to you. So this is kind of created a domestic political dynamic that has that has required the West to be an enemy, not a partner. He needs he needs an enemy. He needs a boogeyman to point to and say, those big bad guys over in the US and Europe, they, you know, they dominated us and they humiliated us. And now it's our turn to to, you know, get it, it it's our turn to rise again. And uh, you know, if you read the Chinese media. They, they talk about the opium war like it happened, you know, two weeks ago, not nearly 200 years ago. He, the Chinese government does not have to choose this course. They could look at the last 40 years and they could say, gee, look at how rich and influential we've become participating with the U.S. and, and Europe. That could be their narrative, right? That but they're choosing not to have that narrative, in their domestic messaging is all about China rising against its against its enemies and correcting the, the wrongs of history. Well, so, my
0: point would be that the creation of a tyranny, really a dictator for life, a president for life in Xi Jinping, is a classic example. Tyrants need because they often can't deliver for their for their people, and there is crisis, and the people are mad, and the, there are periods in which they are. And the way that you survive politically is you pick foreign enemies and you pick fights and it it works every time. I mean, without the Falklands war, Thatcher might not have been reelected. It's amazing how it unites people. And, and I think you're going to see over here, an attempt to sort of find a a bridge to our own tribal divisions by seeing a common enemy in China. And that will be very tempting for politicians in this country because it works. But when you have a tyranny, which is, essentially uncorrectable when it when its own internal regime is go is dependent upon growth and dependent upon rising sound may not be always be able to be delivered then the likelihood of this power becoming incredibly
1: aggressive internationally
0: strikes me as quite
1: high well you know it depends on where this goes you know you do have You do have a lot of elements in Chinese society who don't necessarily want the country to go this way either. Just like there's a lot of elements in the U.S. who don't want to see the U.S.-China relationship go this way. You know, the Chinese as a group of people have very conflicted ideas on this. I mean, look at how many hundreds of thousands of Chinese study in the U.S. and work in the U.S., right? I mean, the public view of the United States in China is not necessarily... Negative in the way that the Chinese state media often present the United States, right? So And you do you do have elements in the Chinese government, my my understanding that Who are looking at what's happening with the US and realizing the potential dangers for this? And look even she himself realizes this because a big part of his economic policy right now Is self-sufficiency. This is the new mantra, right? They need to be self-sufficient. Well, why? Well, they need to have their own chips. They need to have their own technology. They need to have secure supply chains. Well, why is that? Well, because even he realizes that, the, that China is still incredibly vulnerable to U.S.-U.S. action. And they're incredibly dependent on the U.S. and Europe for their technology and their economic development. So even he realizes that China is not necessarily ready for this fight, right? Yeah, and when I look in history, so I'm looking... I mean, thinking about
0: Iraq, the folly of attempting to democratize Iraq against all of its culture and history, even though it's, it's not terrible, it's actually not the worst outcome in Iraq, but to not understand the history of a culture place in understanding how you're going to bring it into a broad, multilateral, semi-democratic system is foolish. And I don't, has China ever really had anything like a sort of broad-based kind of, democratic or even just sort of non tyrannical form of government?
1: Not, not for any length of time. No, I mean, it, it's, yeah, but I don't buy into these cultural arguments. You know, you're getting into the Lee Kuan Yew Asian values argument, right? That because kind of. it, it, Asia, because of its, its history and its culture, is a bad fit for Western style democratic systems. And the fact is that's been proven to be, dead wrong when you look at what's happened in South Korea, for example, where you have a very stable, very vibrant democracy, Taiwan, Japan, and so on. And these are societies, I mentioned those three specifically, because these are societies that were heavily influenced by Chinese civilization and Chinese culture. They're, you know, traditional governments in in Korea, especially traditional government, Korea was very much built Chinese models, institutions. The Japanese borrowed Chinese institutions. They all read Chinese classics. That was the basis of a lot of education in the region. And yet, democracy seemed to be working quite nicely in the in these places. So I don't buy into these cultural arguments that that certain people want to live under authoritarian systems because of you know what happened 2000 years ago that doesn't make any sense
0: well the thing with japan and south korea however is that they were occupied <laughs> invaded and occupied by foreign forces that were able to completely reconstruct their societies from the outside a oh, very I, different well,
1: that, that was true scenario with, with japan on a certain level but remember it also stuck you know
0: in but it, maybe if the west were to occupy all of china and turn it maybe <laughs> maybe all that cultural not, baggage but... would disappear
1: no, but it's also, look, I mean, look, y- yes, you could argue that because of the U.S. influence in some of these places, his, you know, events worked out differently than it would in a place like China. Sure. But, you know, look at what happened with Korea, for example. I mean, when Korea started its big economic ascent in the 1960s, it was a dictatorship and it was through the late 1980s. And at that point you had it was really the Korean public. That was like, we're not doing this anymore. They wanted political rights to match their economic rights, really. You had a massive protest movement that eventually tossed out the dictators, and you've had democratic systems in place, you know, ever since.
0: Hong I mean, Kong, for example, or Taiwan. I mean, these are very successful, or well, they were, Hong Kong was, a very successful little mini-set. And also when you look at the astonishing success that Asian Americans have in the West, so that Asian Americans take to people with Chinese culture or Asian background and history and so on, actually thrive in America and in a capitalist democratic system, partly because it seems to me now, tell me I'm being completely wrong here. But when you think of Confucius, you think of this very strong family uh, component, which we now understand to be kind of crucial to raising kids, that they're best able to exploit the world and to do well in, in life. They have strict understanding of, of learning, of, of the necessity and importance of studying and university and college as a real ethic of education, which is also can be traced back to Confucius, and thrift, which is another Confucian value, right? And so, in fact, many of the characteristics of more traditional Asian culture could be slot right into a Protestant work ethic and the classic conditions for successful capitalist economies, right. as long as they have a very stable social unit. And what's happened in America, of course, is we've had this incredible wealth but also destabilization of these core social units as well as the difficulty of a very culturally and racially and ethically fractured country which isn't true as far as i can tell in china in some ways they have advantages do they not
1: well you know i i don't know i think there's a limit to these cultural aspects in terms of economic progress i mean when there was a lot of writing about when, you know, why did China lose its it lose its great advantage over the west, right? Why didn't the industrial revolution happen in China? China was much more economically advanced than Europe for, you know, much of early human history and was an incredibly in, innovative society and yet somehow it fell behind. And there's been volumes and volumes written about this, but there's one element of it was, well, they blame confucianism. That confucianism was state and backward looking and anti-science and so on and so on you know and then when you had the asian economic miracle and you had japan and korea and singapore and then eventually china and these societies excelling well then people looked around and said oh well why are they so much more successful than other developing countries around the world oh it's confucianism oh because it does all these po- well it can't be both guys you know so it can't be both the reason for asia's collapse and the reason for asia's success so I, I think I'm a little wary of cultural arguments for these things. You know, I tend to think that uh, a lot of it, people are people. And when they're given proper opportunities, they will take advantage of them. When they have opportunities to better educate their children, when they have opportunities to start companies, you know, they will take advantage of them. And, and I think that when you look at the success including in China. Why, was, why has China been so successful? It's not because of the Communist Party and what they did. It's because of what the Communist Party didn't do. The Communist Party finally got the, got out of the way of the Chinese people, and they were able to kind of create their own success. So I think it's, I, I, I believe more that economic success is a result of policy, not necessarily, and the pol- policy and the policy environment, not necessarily people's historical cultural connections, things like that.
0: Let's get to a really present problem, which is that the world has been completely shellacked by this virus that came out of China. There is some debate which is, because of the opacity of the Chinese government, going to be hard to really get to the bottom of. But certainly you could argue that there was perhaps negligence, incompetence along the road there, maybe something leaked, or maybe something natural happened, they didn't respond quickly enough, weren't transparent enough. If it transpires that the Chinese government has some responsibility for what happened to the world. One of the things that people are worried about is that actually this regime has extraordinary capacity scientifically, biologically, and all the rest of it, but they're also capable of making huge mistakes, and they could have global consequences. And when you're having a, a tyranny like that, which cannot be really probed or interrogated, the world is living with a very dangerous adversary.
1: Well, you know, I'm not going to pretend to know how COVID Sorry, started. Actually... <laughs> and, you know, which, you know, is it the lab theory? Is it the it jump from a bat theory? I don't really know. I mean, there's right now we don't have much evidence to support really much of anything. But I think what has become clear is that the Chinese government has no intention of cooperating with the global community on this and really allowing an open and transparent investigation into what happened in Wuhan. They, they don't, they're just too afraid of, of you know, being seen as responsible for it. So I don't think we're ever really gonna get to the bottom of it. And you hit on the bigger problem here is that you have a country, that's the second largest economy in the world that has more and more influence about what's happening everywhere. And and yet does not believe in transparency And openness does not necessarily want to cooperate with the international community on a large range of issues. And this is going to be a perennial problem. It's COVID now, and it's going to be something else in the future. You know, this is why, you know, this is, I'm not sure we can do anything. Just like we can't make the Chinese really cooperate with us on COVID. They say that they want to, but we, you know, the, the... we can't make them open to open their lab and their records if they're not going to. And
0: But should we stop collaborating with them on those projects? I mean, there's some evidence that we were kind of involved in the Wuhan lab and that their uh, gain-of-function research was partly sponsored by and invested in by American entities. I mean, there's a kind of international science community that, that that is integrated in some form that nonetheless as soon as politics comes to play disappears but nonetheless it's still that should we disengage from those technological things and should we also do something to reshore? for example one of the reasons people said you can't go to war over taiwan is that they are incredibly important in producing semiconductors for huge amounts of the world economy well how on earth did the united states have such a critical resource for its economy be somewhere where they couldn't possibly control and if it would cut off from them would be so some sort of reshoring is going to have to happen as a matter of prudence i would think
1: well i well i have different my I, I i see the supply chain issue uh, a little bit differently i think you're right that on certain extremely critical types of products and industries that we may want to have it have these things more at home. With a thing like thing like semiconductors, you don't really get into, you know, the labor issues and other things like that. And I think this is the direction the U.S. government is moving to to incentivize this type of industrial development in the U.S. Same thing with EV supply chains, things like battery factories, stuff like that. But I actually believe that the real answer for some of these supply chain issues is not reshoring, but another round of globalization. I think the problem with our supply chains is not that they're not at home, but that some things have just simply become too concentrated in China. And, and that would be a problem even if China was not becoming more adversarial. I, I don't know why you know, certain companies want to depend so much on their supply on a few factories in China. That doesn't sound like wise business to me, but now that China is becoming more adversarial, it, you know, I would, and it is happening. Companies are looking, you know, we need to diversify where we make things. Some things are gonna be very difficult to reshore certain industries, but you can definitely find other countries that are friendlier to the US, other countries that have, you know, could, have, would actually in some ways be more efficient to make things on and tighten supply chain, maybe having more stuff happening in Latin America, thing, things like that. So I actually think that the problem is that we've gotten too reliant and too concentrated on China, not necessarily that, oh, you know, we really need to make more stuff at home.
0: Yeah, except for domestic reasons, perhaps that we need to make. Well, I, for certain
1: national security reasons, like yeah. you're absolutely right with chips, with things like that, maybe with some pharmaceuticals, anything military related. Obviously, we want to think about well, how do we make and health and healthcare related? The home. fact that we had right. no surgical health, masks. Health, healthcare issues, but then you get into things like, do you do we really care where our dinner plate is made? And, the answer is kind of no, really. I mean, yeah. city, right. So I think it depends on, on the industry. It also depends. And also because, you know, there, there are certain things the way the U.S. labor market is. There are certain things that it's just not efficient to make in in the U.S. And if there's no national security reason to do so, then it's much more efficient from an economic standpoint to find a better place to do it.
0: Michael, it has been really fascinating to to i know i pressed you pretty hard on some <laughs> incredibly sort of difficult choices that we have to make but if i can't do that to you who can i do it to you know I mean, maybe i could harangue some civil servant or something but i'm sorry to put you so relentlessly on the spot <laughs> but no, no, uh... no it's it,
1: it helps me actually think about it because these are issues honestly if you're watching china all the time and i'm, I'm writing about these issues and anything and uh, we are struggling for answers. That is, I—that's the takeaway I, th- I think for this conversation—is that there are no easy answers to any of this, and it's a series of really ugly trade-offs that are actually potentially getting uglier as China advances and as China becomes more more hostile. And it also, because of that, it makes finding the answers even more imperative. And, Which uh, means it
0: seems to me that we be, should be directing more of our attention to this debate, as opposed to some of our more parochial or domestic obsessions um
1: yeah i agree with you i actually don't think that there's enough debate right now going on in the us and europe and around the world more generally about real ways of dealing with this problem you know people have tended to be too ideological on this you know oh you know china's a rising communist you know authoritarian monster and we have to do something or there's the oh but you know we need to cooperate with china on climate change it's neither of these is that's you know no it's just not that simple and i if i knew how it was going to play out i'd be a lot smarter than i am but it's i i think this is the topic for the next five to ten years at least yeah Uh, and and i think there needs to be a broader national policy debate about uh, and working out these very issues
0: well if i were to define the acts of politics in general it would be Ugly trade-off after ugly trade-off, that this is actually reality in human life, and we're going to have to make some calls on this. We will be wrong on some. We may be right on others. But the key is to actually air the stuff, but particularly because I worry that the government sort of believes, the administrations believe they can conduct this without really tapping into broad public opinion in the United States, which is extremely uninformed and could be easily informed by very bad and cartoonish So the important thing is for us in the media, it seems to me, to really think constructively and and pragmatically about these trade-offs and to keep trying to push this. Because this is, it seems to me, one of the most important questions of our generation to get right, this relationship. Michael, thank you for being there. Thank Thank you you. for staying up late at night to do this for us and for me to get up at the crack of nine (laughs) o'clock, which is always a strain. On my birthday, no less, I can't believe I got up to do it on my birthday. But anyway, Michael... You're the best. Thank you so much. We'll Thanks be in touch. Lot. And and we have plenty coming up, as you know. And as you've probably seeing, I'm doing a lot of media right now for Out on a Limb: Collected Essays, 1989 to 2021. Please pick it up. Have a look at it. Lots of stuff in there. Not much about China, unfortunately. Anyway, we'll see you next week. Have a great one.